Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Happy New Year. Welcome to Logitimate, our first episode of 2020. And I'm your host, Rochelle Poulton uh, with AZCLG. I'm a consumer rights attorney helping people deal with financial crisis and recover from them. So 2019 was a great year for us. So we wanted to start off 2020 with zombie debt. All of the stuff that you thought was gone that's still haunting well, your credit and definitely your title. So with us today, we have three awesome, legitimate guests to tell us more about mortgage lending and why you should care about zombie debt and clearing it up in 2020. So what is zombie debt? Zombie debt is the type of debt that maybe you forgot about. So things that probably aren't on your credit report, like judgments or tax liens, dealing with zombie second mortgages, and more. And we're going to cover all of that today. And why you should care is because even though it's not on your credit report, you may still not qualify for mortgage financing because they pull title. And it will show up on your title report and probably disqualify you from most types of mortgage financing. So it applies to business owners, people trying to buy commercial space, renting commercial space, all of this comes into account. So let's talk about getting all of the skeletons out of the closet in 2020 and moving on. So with us, we have three awesome guests. First up, we have Noelle Moretti. She is the Assistant Vice President and Sales Executive at Fidelity National Title. And we have Jody Ayala. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. Assistant Vice President and Branch Manager and Don Hagen, Regional Manager with RWM Home Loans. Awesome to have you here. So let's start with the lovely Noelle. Please tell us all about you, what you do, and what the heck does title have to do with a mortgage transaction? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it has a lot to do with it for sure. But hi, everyone. Good afternoon. I'm Noelle Moretti with Fidelity National Title. So excited to be here today. I actually graduated from Arizona State University with a degree in honors business management. I then moved on, actually was a recruiter for a recruitment firm for a very brief amount of time, and then found my way into the title and escrow industry. And very grateful to be here, to be a part of the Fidelity family. Um, And I've really been able to find my passion, find my why here at Fidelity, which is being able to connect our partners to those win opportunities and create value for them in the marketplace. Um, But absolutely, title has a lot to do with the mortgage industry, which Jody and Don are absolutely going to elaborate for you here shortly. Awesome. (laughs) All right, Jody. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and shortly after graduating from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, I moved out to California and was dancing professionally, ballet, tap, jazz, modern, lyrical, wow, show, you name it, and struggling to pay bills in California. Starving artist. Is, yes. <laughs> so I was... Um, sent off my resume to a bunch of different places and ended up in the title and escrow industry, had no clue what it was. (laughs) Um, And so 15 years later, here we are. I moved to Arizona in 2006, and I've been with Fidelity ever since. And I mean, as far as, you know, title insurance, highly, highly, especially today in our age, make sure you get an owner's, owner's policy. We see 
you know, episode after episode where those policies are kicking into place on our on our side. And thankfully that the the homeowners have protection. Okay. What the heck is an owner's title policy? So the owner's policy, so typically in a transaction, there's two types of policies that are issues. It, it's the lender's policy and then the owner's title policy. The owner's policy ensures the homeowner themselves, and then the lender's policy would ensure the lenders, the loan portion of the transaction. Same thing with, you know, fire insurance. If there's a fire in the home, you're, you've got your policy to, to cover that. The homeowner's insurance or the owner's title policy insurance, if there's, you know, prior liens, anything that didn't get discovered through the title search at closing, then that policy would would kick into place. It covers very uh, a vast array of things that most common people don't even think about when they're when they're purchasing a home. Interesting. More on that later. Okay. All right, Don. Tell us all about you, what you do, and why obviously you matter in a real estate transaction. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm the lucky guy that has the the money. Usually there's uh a lot of people that uh, don't have cash to buy a home uh, with just the cash, so they're looking for some financing. And I'm actually a second generation mortgage banker. My dad was the first mortgage banker in Pennsylvania, mortgage broker in Pennsylvania, and he had six kids. So all six of us got drafted into the business. So I actually, <laughs> I'm that weird guy that thought everybody wanted to grow up and be a mortgage banker when they when they grew up. So. Started off as a closer and then moved into processing. This is before the government deregulated. So back then, you didn't have underwriters working for companies. The government themselves underwrote the loans. So we would put these offering packages together and go down to the FHA's HUD station or to the loan guarantee down at the VA to get the uh, either the insurance or the loan guarantee for, for eligible vets. Sounds super efficient. Personally, I've done over 3,000. Uh, mortgages where my name is on the bottom of the 1003, the, the mortgage application, um, moved into middle management, um, worked uh, for 20 years at Chase by way of a, a lot of acquisitions. Uh, <laughs> back in 89, it was Sears Mortgage owned by Sears and Roebuck, became PNC Mortgage owned out of P- uh, Pittsburgh, then got bought by WAMU, and then got bought by Chase. So, Holy cow. So, All over. <laughs> I, I ran the West Coast for for Chase on the uh, retail origination side. So, and most recently uh, was for the last seven years was at Desert Financial Credit Union. Uh, but there was a great opportunity, and credit unions are fantastic. But in my particular case, I was looking for a more expanded um, program of product offerings. So. Anyway, I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about it. I definitely want to piggyback on some of the things Jody said because the lender's policy is what I generally tend to focus on to make sure that as a lender, we're in first lien position Mm -hmm. right behind the owner of a property. And our insurance is the title insurance's lender policy. Mm -hmm. Fun stuff, people. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, real estate transactions and Arizona is constantly growing. I think a realtor friend of mine told me we get about 200 people a day moving into the Valley of the Mm -hmm. Sun, which means we need housing. People need a place to live. And as you know, rent in Arizona has been increasing pretty exponentially over the last couple of years, making buying a house in some areas more affordable than renting one. 
So with interest rates being so low, I thought we should kick off the year with really educating people about the mortgage lending process, why you need a good team behind you to successfully complete that kind of transaction, and title and mortgage broker, someone working for your interests is critical. Obviously, you need a real estate agent, but they don't deal with the money or the title side. So next time. (laughs) (laughs) But first up, let's talk about one of the things that I see a lot when people come into my office in financial crisis, and that is default judgments. People get sued by creditors all the time, primarily for credit card debt. And sometimes they don't remember when they open the account or even when they stop paying on it. But in August of 2018, the law in Arizona changed and judgments are now valid for a decade instead of five years. So that kind of has a huge impact on people who thought maybe some of those debts from 2011, 2012 just kind of drifted off into oblivion. So Don, let's start with you. When someone has submitted that mortgage loan application. Can you walk our listeners through what that process actually entails? Sure. So generally, as what's defined as a complete mortgage application is having six pieces of information. We need to know the value. We need to know the property address, borrower's name, social security, income. And once we have those things that the clock is ticking, there's other things that are needed uh, along the way. Like but, docs, proof of income. Yep. yep <laughs> copies of, of assets like bank statements to validate all that information. You know, one of the things that came out of the Great Recession is, is that stated income loans, um, you know, they, they had a lot of different names, exotic mortgages or hard money loans or things along those lines. They pretty much, uh, or HOPA loans is what a lot of folks in the, in the industry will call it, which is named after the homeowners. I'm drawing a little blank on the EPA part of it. But, <laughs> but anyway, that, that really set the tone that someone needed to either get a qualified mortgage, a QM loan. Uh, they could get a, um, uh, a non-QM loan, but all of them pretty much have to fall under the ability to repay the ATR. You, a lender now is responsible for making sure that a prospective borrower has not only the desire to buy the home, but has the ability to buy the home because they qualify. And this is in response, I'm guessing, to the 2007 to 2009 default rate of mortgages in the United States. Exactly. So now once they've made the application, we run a credit report. If they're going through either Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or you know one of the what we call the GSEs, government-sponsored enterprises, they have certain criteria. And about half of all mortgages actually wind up in the secondary market through these. So mm-hmm. th- whatever everybody else is doing, we're all following, for the most part, the underwriting guidelines of Fannie, Freddie, and, and Ginny, Ginny Mae for government-backed loans. So when someone is having one of these problems of one of the zombie deaths of judgments, at what point do you discover those are a problem? We generally will get a prelim, preliminary title report, and that's usually about a week or so after the application. It could be sooner, but as soon as we see that there's some liens or judgments, we need to make sure that they get cleared. In our case, I really kind of focus on the Schedule B, the to make sure that they're not listed as exceptions because what I'm looking for as a lender policy is what we call the ALTA policy. And the ALTA policy just basically kind of covers everything for us so that if there does turn out to be 
you know, a zombie debt that no one caught, the title insurance is what's going to actually protect us for that for, as a, from a lender standpoint. Protect your lien position, correct? Protect the lien position. Right? Awesome. So um, for Jody and Noel, so when you are pulling this prelim report for mortgage lenders, what do you see? What, what is included in a title report? What is on this elusive document? So when we do the initial title search, we search not only the property, the legal description specific to that property, but we also search the borrower's name. If it's a, um, a purchase or sale, we'll also search the seller's name. That will pull in even name variations. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times when we get those preliminary title reports, it, it might have a lien on there that doesn't necessarily belong to the borrower, but we will have them fill out an additional document, a statement of information to confirm socials match, date of birth, driver's license numbers, any information on the uh, the recorded document that might match or not match to the borrower, as well as contacting maybe the attorney's office. If, if there's no identifying information on the document, we can contact the attorney's office directly and you know, name match or social match, date of birth, all that stuff to to determine one in the same or not one in the same. Fun fact, when yeah. title starts calling about judgments, mm-hmm. uh, people realize that this person is now ready to buy a house, uh-huh. which means mm-hmm. they have money. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's time for those judgments to get paid. So a uh, fun story. I had this one client, really nice lady. She'd been renting for 30 years, was finally ready to buy her first home. And uh, her daughter contacted us because they had found their dream home. They had done the title report and they found a $60,000 judgment against her for Mm -hmm, 2012 mm -hmm. for a medical helicopter bill. And she's like, "Uh, I don't know what this is from. I don't think this is me. I've never been in a helicopter. I've never been in a hospital. So I was like, all right. So we got documentation from the law firm. And it was the same name, but for a woman in Texas. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it took some work, but it turns out they sued the wrong person. Oh, So no. they had sued the wrong person, sued the, had title. It was a mess. Basically, we had to do a motion to vacate, get that actually vacated through the court system. It was a whole big deal. But yeah, it was 60 grand that she didn't owe. So talk about oopsies. Mistakes happen, mixed file issues happen. So I think that, you know, one of the takeaways here is just because something bad happens on title doesn't mean that you're screwed. There's always hope. Well, and identity (laughs) theft here in Arizona is a big, a big struggle too. So, you know, there's situations, yeah, where we've come across that same person, socials match and it's, Fraud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People so. think identity theft sometimes is a victimless crime until you meet the people who have right. suffered from right. being victims of identity theft. It's yeah. expensive and ruins your credit and you can't qualify for mortgage financing. Right. <laughs> well, if uh, back to that uh, Schedule B, if you get to a certain point from the title side and title recognizes that it is an error, and everything might not necessarily be fixed or satisfied yet, but they'll take it off that exception list and ins- and basically ensure over mm-hmm. that judgment. Then mm-hmm. we can proceed from a, as a, from a mortgage lender standpoint. I can't proceed if it's unresolved or uninsured. 
Right. So, so in our case, we always need to make sure that the judgment uh, uh, is paid, whether it's a federal tax lien or a judgment or, or you know, there's a couple other things that fall under that category. But we always want the judgment, to your point, paid. We, but we want it paid at closing, from closing. If they recognize that it's their debt and they want to pay it off now as opposed to some later point, and it's not part of I want to buy the house, but if a, a lot of people that are buying the houses um, and they get to a spot where they don't realize there is a judgment, then that money part portion is a surprise. They've saved for the down payment and the closing costs. They haven't saved for the judgment. But to your earlier point, yes, it's it's got to be satisfied. So we generally don't want them paying judgments off before closing because if there is something wrong with the closing, now now they've got you know no cash or no resources potentially. So we just say the best way is to make sure that whatever other hurdles that might pop up, a low appraisal, uh, you know, some environmental issue because it was built on a gas station and rezoned residential, and you know, just things that longer you're in it, the more the weird things start happening. So, oh yeah, I think that's true for any industry. Like the fun stories we could all tell, right? <laughs> <laughs> so with um, you brought up a good point with. Federal income taxes, not just federal, but also state. Those suckers kind of drag out there forever. And when you pull up a tax lien, you know, those show up on title reports too, right? They do. They do. So do you look by state or are you looking nationally? We search specifically the property and by the the borrower, the seller's first and last name. We've had situations where typically it's it's down to the state but we have had some rare instances in outside lane counties that have pulled up stuff in another state randomly before but typically it's it's what the documents that are recorded in our county yeah i mean you end up with tax liens that they usually don't show up anymore on credit reports when did you start noticing that judgments and tax liens stopped appearing on credit reports there was a, a law passed, mm-hmm. and so really relatively fast, if not almost immediately, we got notified that, that that we needed to do some extra homework on ourselves if we were worried or concerned about it because uh, I actually always had two resources. We had the title companies and we had the credit bureaus. So, you know, we were required to find out where someone has worked for the last two years but we'll generally find out in the interview if they bring it up that they lived in California or they lived in Texas, then that'll be a red flag that maybe that's what we need to do is do a little bit deeper dive and not just Maricopa County. But hey, you know, they lived in Riverside for 12 years. Maybe something happened over there. So we'll, we'll do something that just goes an, an extra step. But as a, as a, as a fast rule, we're really leaning on the title insurance mm-hmm. companies to help us with that 99.99% of the time. Yeah. Cause they're the professionals. <laughs> <laughs> we try to be. We try. <laughs> totally fair. So back to judgments, just a quick rack up on uh, what people's options are for dealing with that type of zombie debt. Step one is always make sure it's you before you pay it. Uh, you'd be surprised about how many mistakes are out there regarding yeah. debt, even stuff on your credit report. And then remember, you can always settle. And when you settle a judgment, you're talking about 
settling just means you're paying less than the full balance owed. And many, many law firms are willing to work with people on those types of issues. So it never hurts to ask. The worst that they can do is say no. And you can even time those settlements to be paid through closing, but just make sure that you get it in writing. So just because you might have a $40,000 judgment doesn't mean you're never going to buy a house. Just means maybe not this month. (laughs) (laughs) Just a no today, but keep Keep trying in sales. It takes nine no's to get a yes. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So any other notes on judgments that people should know about? I think just, especially on refinances, there's always the option for the affidavit of homestead declaring your, you know, if it's your primary residence, you can declare, I believe it's up to 150000 So that's, and of course we do that, you know, in title on on a case-by-case basis. We're not advising anybody to do that by any means, but that 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 is an option out there that uh, people should take used. advantage of. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> and I brought a little matrix sheet that unfortunately the listeners can't see, but uh, there are some other options too. FHA, for example, will allow if someone doesn't have enough funds to pay off a judgment, but it will be uh, subordinated. So if it's subordinated to our lien position, because I always still have to be in first lien position, uh, we can accept uh, uh, FHA, for example, will accept uh, payment schedules. So somebody owes $10,000, they have enough for just the closing costs and the down payment, but they can also afford, say, $300 or $200 a month to start you know, chipping away at that judgment. Um, then uh, FHA will allow us to still close on that loan, even though that situation is not paid off. But Freddie and and Fannie are generally looking for settlement. At that settlement, that judgment's gotta gotta go away. Yeah, most debt settlement too includes a payment structure, like because a lot of people don't have in a case of a forty thousand dollar judgment, forty grand to throw at it. Right, but right. it just depends on the program. Right. Right. And how many programs are there? You can say too many to count. <laughs> that is a fair answer. So, so in addition to the three biggies, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, um, and Ginny Mae, there's basically about 10 or 12 similar type of companies. They're private or some of them actually are even public, but they're not, they're not, they're not, um, they don't have any government explicit guarantees or implicit guarantees behind them. Um, in our case, just my company alone has us as a, as a primary lender, but we have 41 investors. <laughs> so, and each of them probably, if I looked at, you know, all of them, I'm going to say they probably average 10 to 20 different programs each, you know, that you could put them under. So there's thousands, to be honest with you. Yeah. A paper probably accounts for 75% of all mortgages, but there are some, what we used to call alt A or, you know, even today, kind of a subprime kind of, you know, how it's said is they don't call it subprime. They call it non-prime. That's the <laughs> new buzzword for it. So a paper and not a paper. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a different episode. So taxes. <laughs> Federal tax liens. Um, we touched on this a little bit, but one of the things that I think it's important to note that people don't know is that uh, tax liens expire. Federal tax debt, surprisingly, doesn't follow you forever unless you fail to file a tax return. 
So if you filed a tax return, most of the time these tax liens, they get recorded years and years and years after the tax was assessed. So it's really important that if you find a tax lien, just take a look at it and see when it says it expired. So many times a Mm -hmm. tax lien is already expired, but people are really concerned that they can't buy a mortgage because they have old tax debt. So before you think that maybe one of these zombie issues um, is preventing you from qualifying for a mortgage, you should talk to a mortgage professional first. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The worst thing that I think can happen is they say no today, right? I will say yes. uh, But again, I would be pretty much picking up the phone to call Jody and say, Jody, can you research when this expired? And if she takes it off the schedule B that I keep harping on, uh, you're good to go. I'm good to go. So we we wouldn't we wouldn't be delaying the closing or anything. Hear that, people? <laughs> <laughs> Just go find out. It's never as bad as you think. Right. So one of the main issues that I wanted to talk about is this fun fun remnant from 2000s early 2000s that I see cropping up in my office with more and more regularity. And that are zombie second mortgages. Mm. So these are loans that potentially you thought were discharged in bankruptcy, but you still own the home. They're still hanging out there. Or that you thought maybe you got rid of with your loan modification, but really it's just a silent second that's hanging out there and your payoff is like $100,000 higher than you thought. There's so many iterations of this. So anybody have any comments? Noelle, I see you staring at me. Like, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think that it's really important to, you know, talk to a reputable title company or someone like Don, who's such a great lender in the industry. We at Fidelity can always check to see if a property is in first or second position. So I think that definitely being able to reach out to a reliable source, definitely that would be your start. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Any other notes on that? Are <laughs> no, you seeing think, more and more of this? Yeah, oh, I think yes. usually, at least, I would say the majority of those seconds, a lot of times we, we're seeing that they're paid off, zero balance, but the homeowner didn't realize that it was, they thought it was just, you know, like a personal line of credit, if you will, mm-hmm. that, that wasn't ever recorded or attached to their property. So that it's something that we still have to go. We need a loan number. We need your social, you know, so we go through the whole, um, you know, explaining all of that to them because they're, they, they get the title report and they, they see that second loan on there and it's $300,000 or whatever. And, and they hit the panic button and they don't actually even remember what that was, yep. you know? And so we'll, do you have your your original settlement statement? You know, we walk them through all of that. And then they see, oh, the, they did get it, take out a second loan for whatever reason, but it they never took a draw on it. And so, you know, it's a, a lot of times it's just a matter of getting a zero payoff statement and then following up with the release after closing. But that's, you know, we see that more times than people not realizing that there there's a an actual outstanding amount on the second. It has happened. I'm not saying that, it, you know, it's, you know, not never happened or anything, but usually when they don't know about that second, it's it's because it's a zero balance. Mm-hmm. It's what we see on our end anyways. Yeah, there's, there's two kinds of seconds generally, uh, what we call a fixed, uh, just a home equity loan at HEL. And then there's a HELOC, which is a home equity line of credit. Mm-hmm. It's that second one that Jody's talking about. But 
the other and that is the majority of the scenarios that 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 covered the majority of situations that scenario that Jody was describing uh but there's title companies second um, mortgage companies that just haven't gotten around to filing the satisfaction right. the release so, you know, yeah. so, so it's 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 you know the 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 good the bad the, the on on primary loans or the first first lien loans is is that they're so regulated that that it's form you know it's 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 easy to follow it's just literally use the checklist and make sure the checklist is completed and you're good to go second mortgages are a little bit looser there isn't any industry standard for underwriting and in some cases they're closing departments or their treasury or you know they go by a lot of different names um are all geared for kind of doing what I do on the origination side, but they're not necessarily uh, as diligent, if you will, when a loan's paid off and they've got the money. There's still homework for them to do that That as first lend, mortgage lenders, we're absolutely required to do it because Fannie and Freddie won't buy the loan. So <laughs> we're. it's not only that they have to get done, they have to get done very timely. Promptly. Yeah, promptly. Uh, whereas seconds, it's... Uh, you know, hopefully it was a, a big or a good or a reputable, reputable being the operative word there, that does do it from A to Z, not just stopping once they got their money back. <laughs> so it wouldn't be a show called Zombie Dead if we weren't talking about the ones where there is a balance left. So do you come across those um, ever? Where they actually owe it? Yes, yeah. but, but then it needs to be dealt with. Uh, I can't, once I'm aware of it, I can't, I can't ignore it, you know. Um, Once the bell has been rung, it cannot be unrung. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So on our end, when we see these fun little suckers, it's like, wow, there's another rainbow and no one likes how this one ever is going to turn out. You either find a pot of gold or you find (laughs) a little, I don't know, leprechaun ready to kick you. Either way, (laughs) it's not great. Um, So for us, when we see someone who has a second mortgage that's still hanging out there, we're talking, it's not on your credit report anymore because you haven't paid it in over seven years and that's how long they could report these things. So no activity for over a decade, not going to be on your credit report. If you filed for bankruptcy, there's a pretty good chance in 2011 to 2013, your bankruptcy attorney had no idea that this thing wasn't discharged in your bankruptcy because those laws weren't quite worked out back then yet. So it's an issue because these things continue to accrue into the future. So if it hasn't matured yet, there's a good chance you still owe it and or part of it. And that's where the legal funness comes in. There are a few attorneys in town that do help people with lien stripping like we do, but it's really a complicated uh, situation when we run across someone with a second mortgage that's unpaid. You're talking minimum three months to figure Mm. out if you can solve it quickly, but it could take a year. And depending on whether or not the person has funds, you could end up, you know, really being in a pickle where you're going to have to pay it off in full. So um, I think if you've got one of those zombie seconds out there, step one, don't panic. (laughs) Um, But step two, do something about it because it's not going to go away. I think that's the key takeaway with all of these fun, fun debts is they stay. (laughs) Well, and it used to be, I mean, there's been so many times where we've called homeowners because they they return their paperwork and they only provide information for the first and we look at the title report and there's a second. And so we call them and they say, oh, I paid that off in XYZ 
date, year, whatever. And we say, can you just go back any of your paper, through any of your paperwork that you have? And they find the original release. So now they send their releases to the title company so we can record them immediately. They used to send those directly to the homeowners. Wow. And the homeowners don't, they don't know. They don't know. They, they don't think it's know, a copy. Right. They don't know to, to, to record those. So we've actually been able to get quite a few from homeowners files and, and bring them in at closing and then we, we record them. We're always saying, is it original? Are you sure it's an original? <laughs> so, but yeah. That's fun. I imagine you run into occasionally a record retention problem. Most companies right. only keep records for seven years and some of these things are way older than that. Right. So what do you do in those situations? You know, we try to, try, I mean, and especially with, you know, assignments of loans and, and things like that, not lenders don't always, once they're, the loans are sold, they're supposed supposed to record a, you know, assignment of public record. Sometimes that doesn't get done. Nope. So it's just really communicating with the homeowners, trying to track it, you know, through the system, through, I mean, we, some, some of the loans, you have to call several different servicing companies on the on the loans to try to figure out, okay, and then you find out it was sold again, so you're calling the next, <laughs> and you just kind of go down the line. Depending on the amount and depending on how much it is, sometimes it comes down to a business decision, and that's that's done by the the title underwriter and, and the, the title attorneys. Fun stuff. Yeah. I've rendered a few opinions on those. <laughs> <laughs> um, dealing with uh, other types of zombie debt, one thing that I think people forget about as business owners are SBA loans. A lot of the times people don't realize that those are federally guaranteed. <laughs> so if you've defaulted on an SBA loan, how easy is it to get a mortgage? So with SBA loans, regardless of the amount, they lean everything that you have. So if you have any asset, it's getting leaned. And real estate, obviously, is the one they like the most to lean. So if they've defaulted on an SBA loan or there's been some kind of business issue, it, it actually does become a personal issue because that actually will show up on the, on the credit report. Yep. Uh, so once we know that, um, and let's just say it's a refinance. Uh, if I can get the SBA loan subordinated and there's other variables. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, judgments and tax liens, but it's not go, no go for just that situation. There's other variables that are almost as important that you need to, to, to look at. So actually I'd say judgments are the second thing that we, we look at in that checklist I was talking at. The first, checklist is review the credit report. Oh, we've now discovered that there's an SBA loan. We know the prelim is going to come back and that's going to show that there's an SBA lien on there. And if it's been paid, then we're just asking for them to uh, subordinate that loan so that we can go move back into first position. If there's some kind of delinquency or something, what is the impact of that on the FICO score? So, you know, it's as strange as it is, you can have people that have had foreclosures and bankruptcies and they're not really seasoned too long. And they're in the just, 700s. And they're, they're at fine. 700. Yeah, you know? totally and, fine. And you've got others that, you know, had bankruptcies almost seven years ago and, you know, things look right. So that, that black box of FICO sometimes just, you, you can know, you can see some obvious stuff sometimes, but you get surprised sometimes oh, yeah. too. And that's really what we start with. If somebody has a 700 FICO and a delinquent SBA loan, 
and SBA is willing to subordinate and put some kind of repayment together, then we could probably, you know, work with that. But it's, if it's a 520 FICO and I've got an SBA issue, you know, that, that combination of probably not, probably not you know, and we're going to be issuing an adverse action. <laughs> we never technically deny a loan anymore. That's, that's, it's an adverse action. There is an event that is causing us not to be able to grant the mortgage. If that event can be fixed or corrected, then we can grant mortgages. So we actually never, we never say reject or denial anymore. (sighs) (laughs) I know there's some semantics in there, but. (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh, people are funny. So when you're dealing with SBA loans on urine from a title perspective, um, what are the most common things that you see? Are they common? I can't imagine you see a lot of them. No, for us on the title side, we're really looking at, you know, can we issue the policy or not? That's that's for us. It, it doesn't matter if it's FHA, conventional, hard money, SBA, bring whatever type of loan to us, seller carry back, whatever you want. At the end of the day, it's it's whether, whether the property is insurable or not. Mm-hmm. Pretty cut and dry. Pretty cut and dry. Can we issue a policy, yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> or how, what do we need to do to, to be able to issue issue it clear? Right. Clear for them. Right. So, And that's fun. All right. And on to my uh, other fun topic, student loans. Um, there are private and there are federal student loans. We had a whole episode where all we talked about was the awesomeness of student loans. But student loans and mortgage lending is a totally different ballgame. So... If you're in default on student loans, how does a mortgage originator view that? Well, if it's a government-backed loan, that's 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 a big uh, probably a, a an adverse action waiting back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're we're asking the government to back another loan, and they're already in default on another government-backed loan. So usually, those things have to be cleared up. Uh, but again, if they're willing to put some kind of repayment and we get an okay from FHA or whoever, you know, or not FHA, but whoever the federally insured uh, backed lender is, then then sometimes we can consider it. But you're fighting an uphill battle. I mean, if you're playing the law probabilities, it's it's something that needs to get fixed before you're going to be able to get a government-backed loan. Conventional loans... There's wait periods that you need to deal with on those. But again, we're back to, are we in first position or not? And then what's the FICO score? And, you know, what are the circumstances behind the default? I don't think, uh, you, you mentioned taxes uh, do actually have a sunset on a judgment on those. But I don't know if student loans do. They're kind of a forever thing as far as I knew. <laughs> uh, private loans do eventually expire. If they sue you, then it's subject to the state statute limitations on the actual judgment. But federal loans are forever. Uh, you can discharge them, you know, for all a variety of reasons. Um, otherwise, they're they're with you till you die. Um, and even then, you still have to fill out more paperwork, or at least your surviving family members do, which is pretty mean. It is a whole process to get rid of federal student loans. Usually when someone's in default and they're trying to qualify for mortgage lending, your options are two. You can try to do a rehabilitation of the federal student loans, but that is a 10-month process. So when someone is entering into that process, it's like, I'm going to close on Tuesday. It's like, no, you're not. Um, It's okay because you're going to find a better house in 10 months. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) It's going to be fine. Uh, The second option is, of course, uh, consolidation. Assuming your loans are whoever they're with. And if you can qualify, there's a moving target on consolidating. But usually consolidating defaulted student loans is a pretty quick process, usually about 60 days. And then you're right back into trying to qualify for a mortgage again. I think there's a problem still, though, with dealing with uh, income-driven repayment plans. Uh, Can you qualify for a mortgage these days if you're in an income-driven repayment plan? So we we use the actual payment. Mm -hmm. And if the falls inside the the DTI parameters, yeah, we're good. Uh, If it doesn't or they haven't gotten a payment yet, but there's going to be one that's going to kick in because they're eight months from graduating or something, we'll generally use 1% of the balance on a monthly basis to 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 put a payment in there. But uh, as a fast rule, it's, uh, you know, we, we, there was a period, there was a period where they were always treated almost like regular installment debt. And, and then it became the fact that knowing that student loans, especially the federal ones, they're very flexible. So, so if you do have a problem, you really should call right away before you have a serious problem because they'll generally rework a payment plan for you. And and one of those options is that income, and it can work both ways. You know, if you a lawyer that graduates and you got three hundred thousand dollars of student debt, uh, that's going to be a hefty payment. If you're right out of law school and you do land a ninety hundred thousand dollar job in a law firm, huh? That's not a thing. That's not a thing. <laughs> not a thing. Okay. <laughs> Used to be. A thing. I see the three hundred thousand debt. I don't. You know. I don't. I don't always see. You know. Right out of law school. You're right. They're making that. Okay. Call it sixty thousand, seventy thousand. Yeah. That's more realistic for when I look at lawyers. Yeah. Out of, right out of. Right out of. You know, what do they call them? Three L's. Yes. Third year. So. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. So if you're one of those people, I think pilots, dentists nurses, doctors, lawyers, any kind of professional degree these days is averaging around 150 to 300,000 in student debt. So when they're looking at that 1% payment, 1500, 3000, I mean that's a mortgage without a house. Right. You know, so are there programs available that doesn't screw their DTI? There are. There are. <laughs> so so or what they really do is they just expand the DTI parameters. So for example, a qualified mortgage uh, one of the requirements, and a qualified mortgage is where the government's basically saying to a lender, if you follow these rules, we will give you safe harbor. And that's actually the phrase. Safe harbor is that a lender cannot be sued for making a bad loan to somebody that should never have gotten the loan in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the things that came out of the... the, the you have a pulse the, the to get a mortgage. Frame. Right. So those <laughs> days are over. So what they've said is, is well, everybody was, well, you know, some people are used to a high housing payment. They, you know, they're house rich, life poor. There's other people that are, you know, Car rich. house poor. Yeah. And, <laughs> and life rich, aka a, a Corvette or something that they might have. You're exactly right. Anyway, for us as lenders, they put some hard DTI numbers. It's, it's, it's 43. You have that all your housing payment and all your debts including that $1,500 student debt. If that debt is under 43, you're good to go as a prime loan. If it's over that 43, then then there are some expanded criteria. And even Fannie and Freddie will recognize those. 
They have their own black box. So when we submit it and it's a 45 backend DTI, we still may get an approval. But if we don't, back to what you were saying earlier, then we're going to be looking at really kind of calling up and say, hey, we tried the A paper. You didn't fit inside the proverbial credit box for those rules. But we do have other programs and they'll go up to a max, you know, of, of a 50 DTI or in some cases, you know, I've seen as high as 55 based on all the other strong attributes. It's a healthy, substantial down payment. There's, there's, you know, solid job stability and employment. Uh, they have great reserves, you know, that they could tap that don't get factored into the DTI. So there are other programs that, that can come into play for that. Yes. It's not, it's not a, Sorry, you get, you know, your adverse action. You're, you're, you, you can explore other programs. <laughs> yeah, there's all these articles out there, um, or there used to be. There's less now talking about millennials not buying houses, um, you know, and it's like, well, have you taken a look at their student loan debt? Right, and, you know, right. a big part of that is, you know, the average student loan payment in Arizona is about $324 per person. Like, if you've got two people who went to college, that's 600 bucks, and their gross income is only 60000 here. So you're talking 10% of your gross income going just to student loans. So it's a, a fun problem dealing with those student loans. But the key, I think, here is if they're in default and you want to buy a house, that's not a thing. <laughs> you got to do something about it. Right. Is yes. that right? Correct. Yes. So these things don't show up on title, though, do they? They do not. They don't. So in the world of title reports, um, what is the most common thing that you see outside of credit reports and financing that will hurt someone's probability of closing on a home? I think the credit cards are are probably the biggest one as far as, you know, liens and judgments. Um, we've recently seen a big, a, a significant surge in contracts that are recorded against properties. And then you have a seller who decides they don't want to sell or a tenant that won't leave the home or, I mean, variety of, of different scenarios there. But we've seen a, a surge in, in recorded contracts on properties that you've got to have two signatures to remove that, at least two signatures, a buyer and seller, if, if they're not going to perform that perform on that contract. And one of the parties isn't agreeing to perform on on either side. So I think those are those are probably the two biggest ones along with, um, like we, we've touched on it a little bit, is, is the tax liens, either federal or state tax liens. So I have a question about the elusive other party that you always mention with title, which is escrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so can you help our listeners understand a little bit the difference between title and escrow? Sure. So the title portion is actually the policy that's being being issued. They... The title officer, if you will, will do a scrub on the property, which which we consider the search. So they'll search the property address as well as the the parties in the transactions, their first and last names, and and provide the report. And then it's really up to escrow to you know kind of work through those requirements to be able to allow title to issue that policy. The escrow portion works with the lenders and, and the real estate agents and the buyer and sellers directly to meet those different requirements on the um, the title report to allow the transaction to close. And then the escrow agent is the holder of all the documents and the funds and kind of the, the neutral third party, if you will, between all the parties to make sure everybody is is 
fulfilling their roles in the transaction. I like that. That was very succinct. Nailed Thank it. Thank you. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> nailed it. Totally nailed it. So um, in dealing with a mortgage transaction, obviously, I think you've got a real estate agent, someone who's showing you the house and selling you the house, the agent on the other side who's trying to sell you said house, the mortgage person who's giving you the money to buy the house, title, the people who are making sure you have marketable title that you're buying, and then escrow, who's making sure that everything between all these parties is getting done. And then, of course, the buyer and the seller and a partridge in a pear tree. Is there anybody else involved? It's a lot of parties. <laughs> there are. So honestly, behind the scenes, there could be a mortgage insurance company mm-hmm. if it's less than a 20% down payment. You know, if there is some dispute, you know, even though we're lots and blocks from our legal descriptions, um, if there's just an issue, you might need a survey to resolve it. Um, or back to that, you know, gas station example I use where there's environmental issue, you might need to get an engineer out there to make sure that something's okay. That's there's probably more termite inspectors. Oh yeah, inspectors, repairs. appraisers. Yeah, if there's right. Oh yeah, these guys septic companies. Right. Yeah, and you need homeowners insurance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And flood insurance if right. you live in a flood Shows zone. Shows up on a flood zone. Yep. Yeah. Home warranty. Home warranty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's say someone is getting ready and after listening to this is like, heck yes, I'm definitely buying a house. (laughs) Where should they start? (laughs) They want to buy a house, you know, and and again, obviously I'll be a little biased, but I think they should start with me um, because- You're the money guy. I'm the money guy, you know, and and they should know what they're they're pre-approved for. And there's a difference. There isn't, you know, some people will, will call up and it's like, Saturday night and, you know, they decided that they wanted to buy a house last night. So, and, and it's because they drove by a sign that had an open house and they love it. They want to make an offer and the seller won't accept their offer or entertain their offer if they're not pre-approved. So they just are, you know, just shotgunning out there to say, Hey, you know, yeah, here's my credit, pull pull my credit report. Give me a pre-approval letter. And no, it's, you might get a pre-approval letter, but you almost need to, we issue what they call LSUs, loan status updates, but it'll tell you that that pre-approval letter in Arizona is actually one of the addendums that the Arizona Association of Realtors created so that when they're making an offer, they can actually see from my pre-approval letter what exactly I've done to issue that pre-approval so that it's not worthless. You know, <laughs> here's a pre-approval, but I didn't pull credit. That's pretty worthless, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. I approved pre-approved you and then you got to file. I'm saying no. You know? <laughs> there was uh, just this morning uh, a, a company that, you know, unfortunately uh, got right to closing and and was pre-approved based on income and the job. But it turns out that that person was actually working for a staffing agency. They weren't actually working for that company. Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. essence, they're like a contract worker. And that messed, goes, it up. that messed it up and it messed it up late in the process. So I'd say you want to try and really get the loan, get the borrow needs to be credit underwritten. Let me yes. say it that way where, you know, get the W-2s, the pay stubs. Let's look at your debts. Let's look at your credit report. Let's find out if there's anything that we need to deal with. And now you are in essence the equivalent of a cash buyer because all those issues have been documented uh, and validated that they're that they're that they're solid and inside that proverbial credit box we were talking about earlier. Awesome. 
I think too, it's really important that you find your advocate, which is that licensed real estate agent in the transaction to help you. Because once you find that licensed real estate agent, they can connect you to Don and he can get you that pre-approval letter to get started. Yeah, I would definitely suggest people get a real estate agent. <laughs> like, don't go out Absolutely. just shopping on your own. What are you doing? Right. <laughs> They're there to look out for your best interest. Right. That's what you pay them for. It's <laughs> yes. worth it. Right. Professional services yep. are usually worth it. Yep. Um, so, on the other end of things, when does title come into all of this? So, who gets to pick the title company? Well, there's multiple answers to that question for sure. I know. Give them the by law answer first. By law in Arizona. By, by, by law, the buyer picks the title company. We see, you know, a vast, vast array of decision makers throughout the entire transaction, but, but typically it's up to the buyer. Right. And a lot of times your licensed real estate agent has, you know, a preferred partner that they will absolutely recommend for you to use. So I would definitely use, you know, who they feel comfortable with you using and trust that judgment. Mm -hmm. Because they actually have experience. Correct. Closing a loan. Correct. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So a quick question for clarification. When people apply for a mortgage, on average, how many times do you think out of 10 it actually gets approved. So people kind of have a reference point for the this problem of actually closing on a real estate transaction. Great question, but it is a it's not a it's, it's a it's, range. It's, it's like, a moving range. Give me give me law school in 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> it's like trying to It get, depends. It depends. So so let me go macro first. Just the numbers, mm-hmm. okay? In my case, relatively recently, and I'm going to be giving you approximates, uh, but the ratio is if I, if we take a hundred credit applications and I'll, and I, and we call them ECOA apps. In other words, once I run your credit, I have to have a legitimate business reason for pulling your credits. One mm-hmm. of the laws that got passed that, that, that's, the FCRA. that's, yeah, that stopped, you know, just, Hey, I, I'm a lender. I wonder what my neighbor's credit score is. You know, so I have no <laughs> business reason to know that, but even though I have access to being able to pull that. So there's laws that say that's a big no-no and there's serious consequences for doing that. But it, once I, once I've gotten your permission to pull your credit and I have to document that by the way, so I can mm-hmm. do it verbally at the ECOA stage, at the RESPA stage, I need to do it in writing. I, I need your permission to proceed uh, in writing. But but initially, when you call me and you say, Don, hey, we're going out this weekend to look at houses. I want to just get pre-approved because I don't want to be looking at $500,000 houses, which I know I'm going to love. And then I find out I can only afford 300000 So tell me what my max is. And, you know, so I'll pull their credit. I'll get some information on their income, get some information on their debts. Make sure I do the DTI and that's the, that's the, you know, we're off to the races, so to speak. At that stage, from my ECOA apps to my actual funding, so call it this way, a referral becomes an app, an ECOA app, which becomes a RESPA app, which becomes a closing. Mm -hmm. So the question you're asking is how many people call and then actually close? Yep. So, so when you, when you look at the tire kickers, because, 
There's a difference between, <laughs> you know, demand by, by in economics is two things. Yeah. Your, your ability, it's your desire to buy. Yep. And then it's your ability to buy. So you might want to buy a Rolls Royce. <laughs> you might have a desire to do it. But if you don't have the ability to buy the Rolls Royce, that's not demand. So in, this, in the case of that, it literally is 25% of people that initially kick the tires actually get to the ECOA stage. Once it gets to the ECOA stage, that percentage then uh, is roughly a third, mm-hmm. okay? And then once it gets to the RESPA stage, most of the problems should have been resolved. So at the RESPA stage, that number should actually be around 80%. Yeah. And what 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 dings that is two things. 9% of it is low appraisals, Mm-hmm. And the second one is uh, 8% are um, failed home inspections. So right there, that's the 17% that nobody knows until those things are done. Yep. And those things are expensive. So they're not done until after RESPA. And, you know, we're almost getting ready to go to closing. We, we try to move that up to the front of the app. Once, once, a, once I get a permission to proceed, the contract usually tells, you know, you've got 10 days to get the property inspection Mm -hmm. because if it comes back bad, I want to get the house back on the market as the seller, you know, not drag it out for the 60 days or 30 days that the contract might be. Exactly. That's a great perspective. So I think the whole point of me just asking, honestly, is just to let people know, like, it's okay if you get denied um, or not denied, but an adverse action. Um, (laughs) It could be the next house is the one you close on. So, you know, just because this is a process and you have to go through it, sometimes it takes a few tries uh, to make sure everything aligning in place. Because a big problem with zombie debt is people feel defeated when Mm -hmm. they learn about, oh, I have this judgment. Oh, I have this tax lien. Oh, I have these student loans in default or an SBA loan or a business that failed. Life happens. And if you want to buy a house, there's no reason to not just address the zombie debt and move on. Make 2020 awesome. It's totally here. Do the thing. Make it happen. But um, uh, for the last couple seconds, let's go ahead and tell people how can they contact you. You know, let's start with you guys, Joelle and Jody. Please let our listeners know what's the best way to reach you. You can contact us either via phone number or email. Mine is N-O-E-L-L-E period M-O-R-E-T-T-I at F-N-F. Dot com. My phone number is 480-329-7224. Jody, I don't know my phone number. I don't call myself. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are an email wizard. You yeah, no, yeah. My, um, yes, I'm, uh, I'm on the um, Fidelity Phoenix website, or um, you can email me. It's Jody, J-O-D-I dot Ayala, A-Y-A-L-A at fnf.com, F is in Frank and is in Nancy, F is in Frank.com. And um, our office phone number is 480-822-6603. That's my direct line. Awesome. Business card for the win. Yes, <laughs> yes for the win. <laughs> All right, Don, what about you? Hi, uh, mine is uh, Don H at rwmloans.com. Uh, my office number is 858-794-2155. I'm reading it from the card like Jody. I'm saying this is full disclosure. Yeah, we don't call ourselves, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> uh, and, and then again, we have um, a, a Facebook page and a website 
with RWM Home Loans. RWM Home Loans and RWM. Fidelity Title. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Remember these names. They're critical. <laughs> all right. And uh, I'm your host, Rochelle Poulton. Thank you all for listening, tuning in to our legitimate episode on zombie debt. And we will see you next time at the end of January, I think on the 19th. And that is the third Thursday in January. You can find us online on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere where there is a podcast. And we will talk to you next time. Legitimately yours. Mm-hmm.